Can I just say that I love it when I can't get you to stop talking to each other? That is awesome. Well, as I said earlier, this Sunday marks two endings in the life of our community. It is the finale of our 50th anniversary celebration. We've been spending the months looking at each decade at a time, and today we look to the future, the future of grace, as we, again, remember, celebrate, and share 50 years together. But it also is the conclusion, as I said earlier, of our fall sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And both, not coincidentally, come on the eve of our national celebration of Thanksgiving as a nation. And the timing for me couldn't be more appropriate as this last year of looking back over five decades reminds us we have much to give thanks for as the community of grace. And as we have learned from Jesus over these last few weeks from Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it is out of our gratitude for God's grace that we ought to live generously in our relationship with others. Again, why don't you turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Take that Bible that's there in the pew or the Bible that you brought with you and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Let me repeat that again. The essence of this series on generous living is it is out of our gratitude for God's grace that we ought to live generously in our relationship with others. And this morning is going to be an unusual message for me because I'm going to be trying to do two things. I'm going to try to close out our looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And from all we've learned, but especially the passage before us today, I'm also going to try to speak about what we've learned in looking at five decades of grace, and what we can anticipate looking to the future. So I imagine that there's going to be a lot for you to receive, and I'm going to try to repeat myself and prompt you along the way for things that I really think we need to remember together. But first, the starting point is Matthew chapter 7. Let's conclude our time in Matthew by listening to Jesus' close to the greatest sermon he ever preached, and that's Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Here, What Matthew writes, what Jesus said. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus concludes his message to us, and keep those Bibles open, because you may be tempted to thumb back to things we've looked at already in Matthew 5 through 7. But here, Jesus concludes his message to us with this contrasting picture of a house built on sand and a house built on the rock. And I want you to see in this, just these brief series of verses that hearing and doing is what Jesus equates to building. Those two things together. Hearing the word, and we can hear that, understand that in many different ways. Hearing the Bible, hearing Jesus, hearing him in the Sermon on the Mount, all the things that he teaches to us, that he shows us. Hearing is the foundation. But doing Jesus says, is the application. Doing is the measurement. It's the construction. Doing is the house. That's where we take up residence. We take up residence in the word of God. We take up residence in Christ when we do what he says, when we put into practice what he has shared with us, what he has told us. And and notice here, for Jesus, there are only two kinds of houses. If you will, there are only two sets of blueprints. We are either building God's house on the rock 
We are either building God's house, using Jesus' architectural plan, if you will. And by the way, this house is equated by Jesus with wisdom. This is equated with thoughtfulness. When you build God's house, when you use Jesus' architectural plan, you are taking Jesus seriously. Or we are custom building our own house. We are custom building our own house. We're following our own designs or someone else's designs. We are building not on the rock, but on the sand. And Jesus says this is equated, this kind of building is equated with foolishness. This kind of building is stupid. This kind of building reveals we're not serious about Jesus. Hear that. Because we know a a number of different ways that you can build a house. Jesus says there's only two. You can either build it on what I have taught you, what I have said, what I have done on the rock, or anything else. You're building on sand. And how we build, in other words, what, what we build matters, Jesus says. Why this matters to know there's only two kinds of houses is because there are elements of life, Jesus says, that impact and even threaten us. Jesus, through this picture, invokes elements of life we know well that impact and threaten our lives. Sometimes there's a little rain, Jesus says. Sometimes there's a downpour. We get soaked by trouble. Sometimes the rivers rise. The water level gets deep. And we get flooded by problems. Sometimes the winds blow so hard that everything seems to shift and shake. It seems like chaos is around us. Jesus says that's why it matters how we build what we build. Something interesting to me, I want you to notice if you have it still open, is notice that when Jesus talks to us here, when he tells us to follow him to build on the rock, notice that Jesus does not say that following him, building on the rock, means the storms will never come. You guys all see that, right? Jesus never says, following me, building on the rock is some kind of magic talisman. It's not a protection against the elements of life. Building on the rock, following Jesus, will not protect you from the things that seek to impact and threaten us. Those things, the the rain, the floods, the winds, they affect everyone. Everyone's affected. Building on the rock, following Jesus, is a safeguard, a protection in the midst of these elements. It's not a protection against them. It's a protection in the midst of them. And that's why Jesus says why it matters is because in the end, there's only two outcomes, only two possible outcomes, depending on how you build. Either the house will endure or it will collapse. Either the house remains standing or the house comes crashing down. And this is right in line. God has a habit of making it this simple. There's either truth or there's what's false. You either stand or you fall. God sometimes puts it this bluntly. You either live or you die. Something also worth noting is that when Jesus talks about two houses, these two houses are about two kinds of Christians. Take a look and notice that. The word for professed followers of Jesus, the word is for professed followers of Jesus. Jesus says, those who hear my words and then do them. So Jesus is talking to those who hear. He's not talking to non-believers. Do you hear that, right? He's talking about those who have heard him, those who understand what he says. This is not addressing the world. This is addressing the church. This is addressing disciples. 
The house that crashes, in other words, is not built by one who did not hear. You get that? The house that crashes is not built by one who did not hear. They didn't know. They didn't understand. No, they heard. They understood. They got the message. They embraced Jesus. They just didn't follow him. They just didn't do what Jesus said. And what's interesting to me is that when Jesus presents these two options, what stands out is to not do is a decision. You recognize that? To not do is a decision. Sometimes we think, well, I just, I'm just not choosing that. Well, not choosing is a decision. Not choosing to do is building another house, Jesus says. Don't kid yourself. To not do it is a decision. You just have not made a decision for Jesus. You've not made a decision to follow Christ. So in this brief little passage, with a lot in it, Jesus is the rock. His words, his life, his death, his resurrection are the foundation. It's a great summation of this sermon. We build our lives upon the grace we have been given. If we build our lives on any other foundation than Jesus, the grace that we have in Christ, our houses will not endure. They will fall. And we will fall with them. But when we build the house of God... On the grace we have been given, that building means we live generously. Another way to think of this building is this building is not just building a static building, but when we live on the grace we are given, we live generously by extending that grace to others. Now you see, it's within the context of this parable that Jesus ends the sermon with that I I want to consider the last 50 years of grace, and then I want to look ahead. I want to utilize that image and the starting thing, point of what I want to do is I want to take an inventory. We have had several months, different speakers, great speakers from Grace's past, pastors, pastors who were here, those who went into ministry, and they have given us, we've had conversation with members and friends of Grace. I want us to take an inventory on what we've heard, all that we've heard as we've looked back on five decades. I want us to ask ourselves in the context of this image that Jesus gives us, 50 years later, what has weathered the storm? What has proven to be foundational here at Grace? And what I mean by that is what has demonstrated it's connected to the foundation of Christ. And this means that what I'm about to share, and as I've, been, I've had months to prepare this message, and I've been praying about it and thinking about it and taking notes, is it's, it's getting beyond what we say, our words and our declarations. We have a lot of things in print that we've said over the years at Grace. A lot of sermons have been preached, a lot of Bible studies, a lot of conversations, but taking an inventory is about getting beyond what we say, like Jesus says, and getting to what our actual practices have been. What has weathered the storm? And why this is hard, and it's been, and I commend you as a community, because this has not been an easy conversation, because we could just pat ourselves on the back or say God is good, but we've had to in these conversations at time admit things that weren't good. Admit things that didn't go well. Admit places where we struggled, where we fell. And that's part of what taking an inventory is about, is it's also about clearing away other stuff that might have grown among the core, around the core. It's getting to the foundation, to the heart. And that means that we've had to over these last couple of months, and we're going to need to this morning, to have a confessional posture rather than a prideful one. I am proud of our 50 years. We have much to be thankful for, but we also need to confess. And that's not just 
on a day like today. This is every day. We need to continually empty ourselves. We, we, we can get full of ourselves. I'm not the only one who gets full of himself, right? We need to empty ourselves so that we can be full of Christ. When we're just full of ourselves, there's no room for Jesus. When we're just full of ourselves, there's no room for Jesus. So we have to be willing to empty ourselves a little bit here. You can't receive grace, in other words, if you don't believe, if you don't think you need it. And we continually need God's grace. And what I'm about to do for us corporately, this idea of taking an inventory, is such a valuable practice for us as individuals too. So what I've outlined for you is something we ought to do individually on a regular basis. So here's what I've heard and internalized during our conversation, our looking back over 50 years. And granted, I acknowledge I wasn't here for all 50. I've only been here for seven. But this is what I've heard from you. This is what I've heard from others. And this is what I've internalized. Everything I'm going to share this morning, surprise, surprise, is going to come in threes. Okay? So everything I'm going to say is going to come in threes. Here's your first three. Here's what I've internalized. Number one, looking back over 50 years, size has not been the indicator of our being fruitful. Let me repeat that again. Size has not been the indicator of our being fruitful. Fruit has not necessarily come when we have tried to get bigger, either with larger numbers or with more buildings. Fruit has been born over the last five decades when we have extended our reach within our community and out to the neighborhood as a community. In other words, what I'm saying to you this morning, what I've heard you reflect through your stories, your memories, and those who spoke before us, is our greatest yield has not been in larger attendance or increasing the number of buildings. Our greatest impact over five decades has come from sizable acts and significant moments of profound generosity. That's what I've heard in the midst of our history. And I'm going to give examples that are going to be intentionally vague because in some cases, the people that I'm thinking of would not want attention called to them. And in some cases, because we're a family, those who have benefited or who have received grace would feel awkward with that attention being called to them. But I have heard over five decades so many stories, and it's profoundly impacted me, of generosity, rallying to the aid of a family in crisis when their son was struck blind. Stories of embracing a single mom, and she was one of many in the, in the five decades, who in the midst of her grief and in the stigma of her divorce did not feel isolated but felt welcomed here to raise her children. Reaching out to countless husbands, to dads, who felt distant or hostile to the church and yet were made whenever they were here to feel welcomed, to made to feel accepted and and became a part of the community rather than staying at home when their family was worshiping but felt like they were a part of this family as well. Or stories that many of you experienced of a warm loaf of bread being dropped off on your doorstep as the starting point of a conversation, as a simple gesture with a greater meaning of of asking you as a visitor to let us get to know you, of, of allowing us as we learn your story to invite us into our story here. Size has not been the indicator of us being fruitful. It has been those sizable acts and significant moments of profound generosity. That's first. Something else I've internalized. Number two, We were built for the future. 
Go back to the beginning, the very first sermon, and I'm going to have it um, actually printed for us in you know, a little commemorative thing that we're going to put together for 50 years because that sermon is so good. But it's not just the first sermon, but from the, every sermon afterwards, every con- the minutes of congregational meetings and, and councils, we were built for the future. That's why we're here. And yet over 50 years, while we were built for the future, we have a tendency to live in the past. We were built for the future, but we have a tendency to live in the past. The growth that God has brought to grace has not been by maintaining our status quo. The growth that God has brought to grace has come from us willing to be changed, to be reforming. Our last 50th anniversary speaker, Pastor Householder, who was here on Reformation Sunday, called that out. That we are continually being reformed. The legacy of the Reformation is it's an ongoing thing. It's not a past event. And that's not just true in terms of the history of the wider church. It's true of the individual congregation like us. Growth is about maturity, not necessarily size again. Growth is about maturity. And maturing, growing, is what a living body does, right? A body that no longer grows or matures is a cadaver. It's a corpse, And I look around and I don't see a corpse. I see a living, active, vital body and that has come because we have been willing to be changed. There have been lots of changes over five decades. We've talked about some of them, some of them maybe we didn't even get to. Lots of changes over, what, 50 years. And let's be honest, as we've talked about them, they haven't always been easy. And they haven't always been pain-free. But the changes we have experienced over 50 years have enabled us to continue on as a community of faith. It's this simple. We're still here. We're still here. There are others that are not. We are still diverse. 50 years later, in the midst of that tension, we're still diverse. We're still multi-generational. And I have pri- I'm proud of that in the name of Jesus. We're still attracting new people. There are many of you here who haven't been a part of our 50 years. Maybe not even a year, and yet we're still bringing new people into this community. We need to understand that because, again, we were and we are still built for the future. And so we have to remember that when we have this tendency to live in the past. Real, God-given, God-driven, and lasting change endures. What changes have endured over 50 years? And there's probably others you could list. What changes have endured? The changes that have endured here at Grace over 50 years are the changes that we're made aiming for tomorrow, not for staying where we were. They were the changes that were tilted towards the next generation. I'm going to call this out because it's part of our ongoing tension. We have younger and older people here. Those of you who are older are often the ones who have this tendency to live in the past. And it's ironic because once you were younger and this church was aimed at building your future. You had it. You're in it. And now you want to stay where you are. Do you get it? This church was built for your future. You've lived and continue to live into that future. That means we have to continue to do likewise. And think about the changes, those of you who are older, that you've lived through, that we would not take back even though they were hard. This once was just a church. Now we have a school. And contrary to how much we celebrate our school, it wasn't unified in its, in its vision. Not everybody was on board. There was a time when we worshipped where there was only one style of worship. And before many of you say, yeah, and that was the good old days. 
We grew because we embraced new styles of worship. Bluegrass, drums, God forbid. <laughs> this church has endured because it was open to a renewed, a renewed interest in the Holy Spirit. When we were getting back to the Bible and getting back to the third person of the Trinity, wanting to know the person of the Holy Spirit, to invite the person of the Holy Spirit, it was not without controversy. It was not without difficulty. My God, great controversy just in raising your hands. Standing up, and yet we have been changed. We have allowed ourselves to be changed by this renewed interest in the Holy Spirit. The Alpha Course. How many of you raise your hand have gone through the Alpha Course? Raise your hand. That didn't, wasn't here when we started. And many of you had been a part of the church for a long, long time, and yet you were profoundly changed by the Alpha Course. We have a new form of Sunday school, Bible adventures. It's not Sunday school like when we first started. It's different. So many changes. And those changes that, they, that have endured have always been because they've been changes that God has initiated for the next generation, for those still to come. We are where we are. Say it one more time. Because those who are older, who are no longer with us, by the way, we are where we are because those who are older were willing to look to the future. They were willing to trust the Lord. They were willing to be changed. Beloved in Christ, as I look at you, I ask, is our responsibility any less to look to the future for the sake of the next generation? Do we, having stood on the shoulders, the obedience and sacrifice of those who have gone before us, do we have any less reason to trust the Lord? I don't think so. And for those of you who represent that next generation, and I see a smattering here, I'd like to offer a word to the next generation. If we continue to exist, we will continue to exist for you. For you to continue to be open to how God is changing and building his church. But here's the thing. For you to, to receive this this legacy, for you to take the baton, you have to start thinking about the future as much as you are just living in the present. For those of you who are younger, I've been there, I've been told I'm older, so I'm on the older side now. <laughs> I haven't really adjusted to that yet. And, but when you're younger, you're just living in the present, and you figure you'll think about the future later. You need to start thinking about the future now. You need to realize in the midst of just being okay with the present that God has a future in store for you. That God has a call for your life. God has a destiny in store for you. God has a plan. Your relationship with the Lord, your part in the kingdom of God isn't just something you're supposed to fit in when it's convenient or when you've exhausted all your other resources. This, what we are, we have to be able to pass into hands, but those hands have to be open and have to be willing. And then we have to give you the permission as God leads you to change, to change what's here, to change how we do what we do. Three things I've internalized. The first was size has not been the indicator of our being fruitful. It's been acts and movements of profound generosity. Two, we were built for the future, but we can have a tendency to live in the past. And third, our greatest legacy 
is the testimony of lives that have been changed. 50 years later, gosh, what screams through all the stories is the testimony of lives that have been changed. There are so many stories that we have heard in conversations in Hope Hall, during sermons, in conversations on the patio of people coming to faith of people returning home to the Lord who were away from the church, who came back to to Christ, those who experienced significant breakthrough in their identity in Christ, who who suddenly realized their call in the kingdom. There's so many examples I could give you, and time doesn't allow me, but let me give you just one great example of this, and it's not the only one. Do you know, in 50 years, the number of people who have gone into full-time ministry as pastors, missionaries to serve the Lord, The number is over 25, over 25. And that number, every time I put out a number, someone comes up and says, yeah, but did you know about this? Three things that we've heard over these 50 years. 50 years later, we have much to celebrate, that we continue, despite our tendency to live in the past, to be oriented towards the future, that our greatest legacy is of lives that have been changed. We have stories to tell, miracles to share over 50 years, and that the miracle has not been our size, but it's been our generosity, generosity that God's worked in and through us. But what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow as our foundation remains solid, as we have cleared away what really matters after 50 years? Elsewhere in Scripture, not here, Jesus will talk about counting the cost. Jesus will talk about building, and he'll say, make sure you can finish what started to be built. So what about the future? Again, using this image of a building, I'd like to spur some thoughts and some dreams about the years ahead for us at Grace. So here is my vision for the future, and every time I wrote that down, that just seems just impossible. Impossible in one sense, but then it hit me. The vision for the future is the same as the vision as it's been for the past. Because here's the thing, the vision is the same as it's always been because there's no improving the great commission or the great commandment. That's our vision, the great commission and the great commandment. Our mission statement on the front of our bulletin is just our way of framing the great commission and the great commandment. Vision, as I'm about to talk about it, is about implementation, how we live out the great commandment and the great commission. And it's the how, it's the how that has changed over 50 years, and it's the how that has to continue to change. How are we to be the church in the 21st century? I'm going to just let you know right now that what I'm about to share briefly, there's nothing new here. I am summarizing in, I hope, five to seven minutes, seven years of preaching here at Grace. I'm summer, I'm, there's nothing new that I have. You're going to say, oh, he said that before. This is me trying to break it down in seven minutes. Three things. Looking to the 21st century. We, the vision for the future of the how is be a witness, establish an embassy, and leave a testimony. If you want to write those down, those are the three. Be a witness, establish an embassy, leave a testimony. Be a witness, The vision for the future is that each life here at Grace will be a witness to the reality of the risen Christ. When I look out at you, I don't want you to just believe in Jesus. I want you to be a witness for Christ. Because witnesses provide evidence. Witnesses speak up, not always with words. What I'm trying to say with this vision of be a witness is, beloved, the proof that Jesus lives and we are in a world where people are doubting the reality of the risen Christ, the proof that Jesus lives is seen through Christ at work in you. It's evidenced in more than just believing in Jesus. The witness comes from you and I submitting to Jesus, depending on Jesus, following Jesus. 
It means that literally, as the scriptures say, everything you do, everything you do is done in the name of Jesus. Not just dropping Jesus' name now and again, but everything you do, you seek to do in the name of Jesus. It's actually asking yourself all the time, how would Jesus live your life? How would Jesus live your life? It's asking, as Jesus tells. It's seeking. It's knocking to find out, how would Jesus live my life? Being a witness means knowing Jesus as much as you know yourself. And ironically, the two go hand in hand. The more that you seek to know Jesus, the more, in fact, you'll know your true self. That's why the scriptures say, have the mind of Christ, have the heart of Christ. Beloved, being a witness means we are so focused on, on imitating the habits and practices of Jesus. What were Jesus' habits? What were his practices? What was his mind? What was his heart? This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a disciple. And there's so much more to say, but the presence of the risen Christ, that Jesus lives is witnessed through words and acts of love and forgiveness, service and sacrifice. If you are being a witness, then your life exudes love and forgiveness, service and sacrifice, because that was the way of Christ. And we've heard over our time together, over seven years of preaching, and there's so many examples I could give you because we've got great stories. We heard just a couple of weeks ago of reflecting Jesus, being a witness several thousand feet in the air in an airplane next to your co-pilot. We have heard stories of Jesus being manifest in how a couple walks through an unexpected medical crisis with one of their parents in their first year of marriage. Being a witness to the risen Christ their first year of marriage, walking through a medical crisis in their family. Beloved, we have to be a witness. But the second thing is we have to establish an embassy, number two. And when I say establish an embassy, the vision I'm giving you is every home, and that means your home and mine, every home at Grace will be an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. I didn't make this up. If the scriptures describe and Paul writes that we are ambassadors for Christ, if that's what Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, then doesn't it follow that the spaces we live in are supposed to become embassies of the kingdom of heaven? And what I'm trying to get you to understand, the shift that we need to make, that the world is waiting for, is we need to focus less on making the church building, this address, sacred and holy space, and more about seeing our homes where we live as sacred and holy spaces. It means that inviting people to go to church is fine. And again, I want to encourage you to invite people to come to church on Sunday or when we have something going on. But the real goal, the real vision I have for you is inviting people, others, into your life. Your life. Not your life at church. Your life. We're about to celebrate Advent, and Advent is about incarnation. The message of Advent that we come back to every year is God comes down. That's, those simple three words should blow your mind. The omnipresent God comes down. God reveals himself. God becomes vulnerable and transparent. Jesus, when he gets older, notice this throughout the Gospels, he walks around and he says, the kingdom of heaven is among you. And he doesn't only say it when he's standing in a synagogue. 
In fact, he never says it when he's standing in a synagogue. Don't read into that. <laughs> Don't. The larger point I'm getting is that Jesus is declaring wherever he is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Beloved, if, if we look at Jesus this God who reveals himself, who becomes vulnerable and intimate through incarnation, then opening up our lives, opening up and sharing our homes, that's the vision. It's about hospitality. It's about embracing others as family. So many of us will do that on Thursday, right? We'll find out someone doesn't have a place to go. We'll have them come over to our house for Thanksgiving. That's not supposed to be one day a year. That's supposed to be every moment of our lives. And when we invite them over, how many of you, if you invite someone you don't know over to the house for dinner, are going to give them their plate of food and have them sit in a corner? Well, we fed you, didn't we? You had nowhere else to go, right? No, you're going to talk to them. You're going to spend time with them. You're going to make them, you know, they're going to feel awkward. Well, I don't really know anybody. I don't be, you're going to make them feel like your family. You're going to, they're going to leave profoundly changed. Again, that's not one day a year. That's the vision for us in following Christ for every day of our lives. An embassy, as you know, is sovereign territory, right? That's what an embassy is. It's sovereign territory. That means that wherever an embassy is, the rules and practices of the homeland apply. When you make an embassy of the places that you live, that means that you, we, view our homes as a place of prayer. Is your home a place of prayer? Or do you think if you've got to pray, you've got to go to the church? No! Your home is a place of prayer. Your home is a means of peace and focus. Some people may never get here. They have all kinds of baggage about stepping through a church, but they could step into an embassy of the kingdom of heaven and receive prayer in your home. It's about seeing your home as a place of healing. People, I gotta get prayer, I need encouragement, I gotta get prayer, I gotta pray for healing, I gotta go to church. No! Your home as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven can be a place where encouragement can be given, where restoration can happen. Sometimes it's easier to be vulnerable and intimate the way we need to when we need healing, not in a large church or space like this, but over a dining room table, across from someone on a couch. Our homes are not just a place of prayer or a place of healing, but they're also a place of hope. Is your home a place that when people walk in, when you invite them into your life, that your life, your home, reflects the promise and possibility of God? Or do you live that separate life where you get all the promise and possibility at church, but when you go home, you turn on the news and all the other stuff, and your house is filled with complaining and cynicism and whining, where you're screaming at the television that that person's an idiot and they don't know what they're talking about. And that's right, that's what we ought to do. We need to stop talking to our television and the people on the screen and start talking to Jesus in our homes. We have seen this over 50 years at Grace. This vision is, is just building on our past. We have, we have heard stories. I have heard them, maybe you haven't, maybe, and I'm sharing it with you now. We have had in our community, and this is on more than one occasion, of someone in this community giving another person a room over their head a roof over their head, but, that, but what happened in that experience of someone who didn't have a place to sleep at night is they gave them more than a place to, sp to sleep. We have had people in this community who have opened their homes and made their homes a space for someone who was homeless, who was abandoned to experience family, to experience the support to rebuild their life. In this community, we have had individuals who have invited someone who need, who was in despair, who was grieving, who was confused. They've invited them over for a hot meal. But in that space of a hot meal, we have stories of people who in that space of their home were willing to go further and offer a little food for their soul as well. 
to ask, seek, and knock for another person. And we heard just a couple of months ago, and if you weren't here, we couldn't record it because of, uh, of, of concerns about this, but we had one of our own missionaries, one of our own, who told us a profound story of being in a prison cell bigger than the space I'm walking around in with four other people, and that, per- that man, through listening and obeying Christ, turned a prison cell into a sacred space, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, caring for others. And through those acts of service, caring for others who were Muslim, by the way, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ by simply caring for them. My friends, when I cast this vision that's nothing new on my part, what I'm saying to you is a different, a better world is possible. So many of us are are aching, we're longing for a different or better world, but please hear this. A different, better world is possible, but it will never come because of any government. Please hear that. A different, better world will never come because of any government. It will not become because of any corporation. It will not come because even of a nonprofit. Samaritan's Purse is great. God is working through them. But a different, better world is possible when people open up their lives. Generous living begins at home. Heaven comes to earth as we pray when we allow heaven to come into the actual spaces we occupy. Every life, be a witness to the reality of the risen Christ. Every home becomes an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And the third final part of this vision for grace is that we will leave an ongoing testimony to the truth and power of the gospel. Beloved, let not our legacy be this building Let let not our legacy be our improved facilities. Let not our legacy be nameplates we leave on stuff all over this campus. Given in memory of. Our legacy is a testimony. Our legacy are the stories that we have for 50 years and more stories to tell of changed lives. Our legacy are what we have to offer is stories of reconciliation and restored relationships. It's we need to celebrate and talk about marriages that have been turned around and marriages have been and are being turned around here in this community. It's about parents who've been reconciled with their children. We need to tell those stories. We need to continue to see those chapters get written. It is about coming together as the community of Christ and saying to each other, looking each other in the eye, that if we follow Jesus, if we're hearing his words and putting them into practice, then as far as it's up to us, we will not have any cut-off relationships in our lives. Do you hear me? We will not turn our back on anyone in our lives as far as it is up to us. I can't control what someone else is going to do, but I am not going to give up. I am not going to turn my back on anybody. That's our legacy. That kind of a testimony. Stories of redeemed and resurrected individuals. Stories of people back from addiction, back from bankruptcy. Stories, and we have them, of people who are no longer homeless or jobless. People who are no longer alone. Orphans who have been adopted. Widows who who are not by themselves. Prisoners who come back into the community. It's about resurrected communities as well. It starts with our family, but it extends to our extended family. Our legacy is the story of how we impact the neighborhoods around us how we transform them to where we, as far as it is up to us, refuse to live in isolation or abandonment of our neighbors, where we, as followers of Jesus, know the names and the faces and the stories, not just of who we sit next to in church, but the people who live right next door to us, right across the street from us. It's where we, as a community, our legacies engage and reach people 
before everything falls apart. Beloved, we're not supposed to be reacting where we're there when everything collapses. We're supposed to be through the sensitivity of, of being willing to enter other people's lives to get there before the houses crash down. It means working together, and we do. Seeing each other as part of the same family in the midst of generational, ethnic, and cultural differences. It means together we're not afraid of conflict. We're willing to work through our differences. We don't just leave. We don't just stop talking to each other, but we're willing to work it out. We are willing to work it out. We're not afraid because we continue to tell ourselves and to tell each other that what unites us in Christ is greater than what divides us in the world. Be a witness. Establish an embassy. Leave a testimony. That's the vision. And there are three things, finally, that I think are required for us to build that kind of a future. Three things, last ones. The first is we need to be devoted to prayer. If I have been remiss, hear me now. Prayer is everything. We need to be devoted to prayer. Jesus has taught us in Matthew 5 through 7, has he not, that we are to pray in earnest. We are to pray with trust and without worry. Jesus has taught us, don't get so caught up in how you look when you pray. Just pray. Engage the relationship with your Father. We will go only as far as our prayers. And that conversation Jesus has taught us, if we struggle with prayer, prayer comes out of gratitude. Prayer comes on focusing on the forgiveness we have received, and that way prayer becomes easier because we let go of all the crap that we're carrying. And, for the, and I, keep, I put prayer at front and center because I believe prayer is what leads us into this and leads us into a lifetime of worship. If we focus on the relationship, the conversation with our Father, we will have a hunger for the Word. When we make time for that relationship, suddenly it's amazing, we will find we develop a sensitivity, an ear, a comprehension for the language of the Word. Prayer will lead us into God's word. Prayer will lead us into a posture of worship. Beloved, all it takes when we talk about studying the Bible, we can offer more classes. But here's the thing. Can we just all admit this? There are a ton of resources out there. Do you really need me to create another class? There are so many resources out there. All that's needed to engage this word when we begin the conversation with our Father, all it takes is an open Bible and another person. All it takes is an open Bible and another person and wrestle with God together. And, and for any of you who say, yeah, but if we just had another class, let me just ask you this. How do you think believers did this before they had written Bibles? You know, back in the day, they didn't have written Bibles that they carried around with them, right? How did they do it? Because they listened. How did they do it before they had commentaries and devotionals, which we have so many of? They listened, they repeated out loud to each other, and they processed together. That's how they studied God's word. And I'm sorry, but if it was good for them, it's got to be good enough for us. And we have, again, a wealth of resources. You're not going to get into God's word unless you get into relationship with your father. So first, we've got to be devoted to prayer. Prayer is the gateway. Second, the other thing that we need to be about building is, this is the hardest one in this whole message right now. I'm going to take a drink. <laughs> You'll understand why in a second. To build our future, we need to, to all of us together to agree to not just give when we can, but to actually invest in the kingdom. 
Don't just give when we can, but invest in the kingdom. Jesus said, before we get to how I'm gonna go off of that, Jesus says to us in this sermon, commit to one master. Store up treasures in heaven. Jesus says, serve God by giving of yourself to others. And you've heard this if you've grown up in the church, the big three, give your time, give your talent, give your treasure. Beloved, I'm gonna say it this simple and then I'm gonna break it down. If you are called here, then commit here, invest here. And if you're not called here, though I want you to feel like you're invited here, then go where you are called and invest in the kingdom there. But invest. Don't just give when you can. Commit. In my seven years, we have never had a stewardship campaign. I've never given you a pledge card. And this sermon series, if you haven't caught it, is the close that I'm going to come to a stewardship series. Because I don't believe in tithing. I don't believe in tithing. I believe in living generously. I believe in living generously. I believe that giving comes out of trust and gratitude. I believe if I get you to give because I get you to fill out a pledge card, if I believe if I get you to give because I guilt you or promise you how God's gonna bless you, we are missing the whole point. I don't believe in tithing. I believe in living generously. But the tithe, how many people have said, we gotta teach people how to tithe? All right, here's your little lesson on the tithe. You ready for it? 10% is the standard in the Bible. It's the baseline. It's not a formula. 10% was God's answer to a child's question. And the child's question goes like this. How much do I have to share? It's the answer to someone who wants to avoid the point to give, to share, to be generous. And so when someone says, well, but how much do I have to give? God says, okay, start here, 10%. And to show you how unsuccessful that was, we're all like, 10%, well, can I ease up to it? I mean, 10%, I mean, can I gradually, get that's just ridiculous. It was never the magic number. God's... Jesus finally comes out and says this when he points to a woman who has nothing to give and she puts it in and Jesus says, that's it, right there. Paul will talk about it to a church that has so much to give but can't be generous to a church that has nothing to give and yet is giving generously. And the the scriptures say, it's not about tithing. It's about living generously. And beloved, hear this. Living generously is not about orienting your life to give away as little as you can. Living generously, living out of grace is about orienting your life to give away as much as you can. I have counseled numbers of Christians who literally are stressing, how can I get to the 10%? I just can't do it. And I'm not telling you to do it. Don't, I, whatever. But here's the real point. It's not about how do I get to 10%. What God is inviting you to is to live on less so you can give away more. When's the last time you thought like that? Rather than, okay, I just want to get to that 10%. Woo, I'm to 10%, I'm good. Yes, right. No, God says the ongoing challenge is, can you continue by my grace to live on less so that that way you have more to give away? That's the invitation, that's the challenge. And the reality is, as I look around this room, and this is why this is a hard one for me to talk about, is those of you who are older, You're supporting the predominant giving in this church. And for those of you who are older, who are giving out of obligation, as scary as this is, I want you to give differently. I want you to give because you're living generously. And if that means that we lose what you're giving, I'm willing to take that risk. 
But it's for the younger people who are here. The younger people that I'm supposed to teach how to tithe, that I'm supposed to get out pledge cards for. I'm not going to do it. I am simply going to say to you, if you're called here, invest here. Commit here. For all of us, I want, so you see a different picture. Rather than coming up with budgets and how much we need, the, by your supporting the generosity of grace, I want you to hear this. You, when you're giving, you are pouring into young and developing potential. We can call John because of the generosity of this community. We can continue to invest in Drew because of the generosity of this community. And Lee, your giving enables us to build into young the future. But your generosity, your giving, your investing here enables two other congregations to continue to be built. Did you know we have two other communities that are here worshiping? A Spanish congregation and a Vietnamese community. Do you know we don't charge them rent? We're not in this for money. We want to give them as we have space, a space to worship. Your giving, your investment makes that possible. Are you aware of the outreach to the community that is provided? Orange County Care Connections, they have a budget to pay their caregivers. We do not charge them for the space to be here. We never will because it's our ministry to the community. The Good News Ministry, your investment supports the homeless, the area needy, the working poor. Al-Anon, AA meetings that are here. We have a homeschooling. They pay rent, but we're not charging them in order to make a profit. We want to, in, to fill this campus to make it available to the community. When you invest and commit, you make that possible. Your generosity increases our generosity. For the younger people in our community who never have cash and who don't do checks, and I feel so awkward about this because somehow this isn't readily apparent to everyone, you can give online. If you're not here all the time, you can make sure you're financially contributing, investing in grace. This little QR code right here, if you scan this with your phone, it will take you to our online giving page and you can give as I do, online every week. And to those of you who are younger, who haven't invested and committed, I'm asking you to. I'm asking you to, to increase our generosity through your generosity to the kingdom here at Grace. Spend all that time talking about money. But there's also time and talent too. It takes the community to worship on Sunday. Part of why I'm asking you to invest and be committed is you, you're sharing your talents, your commitment to be here enables worship and fellowship to happen. Do you, we don't have as much going on as we once did in our 50 years. Do you understand how challenging it is for us to do what we do on, on Sunday morning? To run the sound booth, to serve communion, to pray. There are more people sitting than there are serving on Sunday morning. I don't want to guilt and shame you, but I want to ask you to enhance your experience of this community in worship by being willing to give your time and your talent too, even if it's just on Sunday. And if you don't know where to start or where to begin, come and talk to me after this service or at any time, and I will make sure you become a part of that experience. Gosh, this is the longest sermon I've ever preached. You're never going to let me preach again. I knew this was going to happen too. I've given you the two things for building. Be devoted to prayer. Don't just give when you can. Invest in the kingdom. And I've got one final word, and then I, I will close. And we've done it for 50 years. I'm asking you to do it for 50 more. The last thing is be firm, but be flexible. 
Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells us to be firm. He tells us, hey, don't think I've come to abolish the law. He tells us, mind the boundaries of the kingdom. Mind the guidance of the law. Jesus comes right out and says, be firm. Be wary of the things that cause you to stumble. Beware of the distractions that keep you from fully committing to the kingdom. Jesus comes out and says, beware of the idols of self-righteousness. That's anger. Beware of the idol of self-indulgence. That's lust. Beware of the idol of self-justification where you swear oaths, where you love conditionally, where you love to make a show. Jesus says, be firm. But Jesus also says, be flexible. Be firm in minding the guidance of the law, but be flexible in extending the freedom of the kingdom. Be flexible in your application of grace. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Offer the shirt on your back. Stop judging others. Leave that to God. And instead of judging, love without condition, which means, Jesus says, love even your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you rather than seek to bring them down. And for us, flexibility means we need to realize going forward that we are better together. We are going to continue to have once a month a combined service. And I pray that you will continue to be here because we are better together. And I'm asking you to be flexible in the midst of times and styles and volume and all the, just be here. Recognize, be flexible that we're better together. Flexible here for us means recognizing preference never trumps presence. We need each other. Don't just support what you want or you prefer. Can I ask that? Don't just support what you want or prefer. Instead, be flexible in supporting the needs and the inclusion of others. Instead of asking, what do I get? Where's what I want? Can each of us commit instead of asking, what do they need? What do they want? Flexible means embracing our diversity. We have spent seven years, and I don't know if we're there yet, in the midst of having a lot that we've gone through where I look around this room and it can bring me to tears if I let it and I see us, that flexibility that we've allowed the Spirit to give us where we are unified across the generations. It ain't perfect, but I see us multi-generational right now and it is a picture that God gave me when we started our call and it's a picture that we gotta continue to live into and it's been seven years getting here and years before that, that foundation was laid by pastors who came before me but here's what I gotta tell you, looking to the future, we, we, we've gotta... We've got to move beyond just generational unity. We've we got to stop fighting with each other based upon our age differences and our preferences because here's the thing, God's got it right in front of us right now. We have greater diversity than the generations in this room. We have the diversity of cultural diversity. I want to see us worship together with our Vietnamese and Spanish brothers and sisters. But here's the challenge. They don't speak the same language that we do. They have different cultural things and they have different ways that they approach it. You've seen us when we've tried to make this happen. And in order for us to be able to do that, we've got to be willing to be flexible. And up to now, we haven't been ready for that. If we're going to argue about whether we're singing a hymn or a song or how we're receiving communion or what time the service is, there's no way we can embrace another culture. But God has placed other cultures before us. And I want to look five years from now. Is that too far? where all of a sudden we're looking around and we're seeing our Vietnamese, Spanish, whoever else God's bringing here and we're worshiping together. And we may not always even understand what's being said, but we know who it's being said about and where it's pointing to. I talked about being flexible. You might say, well, how, do we be, how are we firm? 
Jesus said to be firm but flexible. So Pastor Chris with this last one, how do we be firm? It's this simple. Being firm is as we've been over the last five decades, the same thing. Being firm for us means being biblically grounded, gospel-driven, Christ-centered, and spirit-filled. Hear that. Being firm for me means being biblically grounded, gospel-driven, Christ-centered, and spirit-filled. If any of those things, and I'm saying this to you as your pastor, if any of those things are lacking, if any of those things are not primary, I want you to speak up. I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to hold the elders accountable. If we're not biblically grounded, if we are not gospel-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-driven, and spirit-filled, speak up. But here's the thing, if those are rightly in focus, then be flexible. Be flexible. (laughs) It's a hushed silence. (laughs) My friends, we have no guarantee for 50 more years. We have no guarantee for 50 more years, let alone 10 years. We were never promised the first 50. And yet here we are. 50 years later, we stand, we endure because the Lord first planted the seed and then brought the growth of what we now know as Grace Lutheran Church and School. Together, and I believe this, together we can embrace every opportunity and we can face any challenge provided we are in alignment with the generous foundation the Lord has built for us. And the future holds great possibilities for grace to expand its posture of gracious hospitality and Christ-centered love in our surrounding neighborhoods. We're not lacking for opportunity in the midst of increasing cultural and ethnic diversity and at a time when new questions are being raised about faith, religion, identity, and meaning for such a time as this, we as grace have been called. The image that has come up again and again as we started our 50s, I continue to see grace, and it's so great that the, I didn't tell the art team this. If you look behind you, if you've never noticed it, the picture I have of grace is a fruitful tree. I see a tree that's grown over 50 years. And another way to, to say the vision is that if grace 50 years later is a fruitful tree, then it's time for one strong and thriving tree to become an orchard. Instead of talking about church planting, Let's focus on planting ourselves in the life of another person. Let's talk about being rooted in the community and the neighborhood God has placed us into because that's what we've been called to do, to keep pointing to the kingdom that will endure forever. We have been called to invite others into the house our Father continues to build through his church, that house that will remain standing no matter what storms may come. And I close with words that are not my own, but words that were said by one of our most beloved pastors, not 50 years in, but 10. Pastor Paul Johnson once wrote these words. Now as we begin this, new, this next decade of grace, we ask God to lead us in becoming a mature people of God. May the new decade find us a people steadfast in prayer, a people in triumph in Christ, a people diligent in the study of his word, a people reaching out in mission to the whole community of God's world, a people growing in love for God and for others, a people always moving ahead in the direction of our Lord. Amen.